I love hearing stories of great faith and the results that faith produces. And for that reason, I love stories about George Mueller. George Mueller was a pastor in England for 66 years in the 19th century. And uh, he's well known for a number of things, but one of them is for the orphanage that he ran. Uh, He cared for over 10,000 children in the course of his life through his orphanages. And there's a story in one of these orphanages where he was sitting down with the children for breakfast and there was quite clearly no food in the house. There's nothing on the table. There was nothing in the kitchen. And he sat down with the kids and he gave thanks for the food that they were about to eat. And the kids are looking at one another and saying, well, what are we going to eat? There's there's nothing here for us. And at just that moment, just like it was out of a movie, there was a knock on the door and the, uh, the baker came by and said, I've got all this fresh bread. Would you like it? And then shortly after that, the milkman knocked on the door and said, my cart just broke down outside of your house and I need to get rid of this milk. Would you like it? And so the kids ate and drank that morning and were amazed at how God provided because of the faith uh, of George Mueller. There's another story where He's on a boat crossing the Atlantic, and he's heading towards North America, and the ship runs into a lot of fog. And so the captain slows down because of the fog, and and George goes up to the captain and says, I need to be in Quebec by tomorrow, so we can't afford to slow down. And the captain says, well, it's too dangerous for us to go any faster than this, so this is the speed that we're going. And so George says, well, I'm going to go below deck and, and pray that the fog will lift. And the captain follows him down the stairs and said, well, that's a waste of time. Like, that's not going to work. There's fog and we need to slow down and you can't just pray it away. And so George starts to pray. And as he prays below deck, the captain is standing there next to him and, and the captain starts to pray. And George stops him and says, don't pray. Uh, first of all, you don't believe. And second of all, the fog's already gone. And they go up above deck and they find out that sure enough, the fog had lifted and they could speed up and he made it on time. Amazing stories of faith that produced real life uh, uh, results. And we see these kinds of results in our own lives when we pray with faith as well. On our Ross Road CC Facebook group this last week, there were some stories about people who said, I didn't have any money, and yet I felt like I was being called to be generous, and so I gave, and then God provided in miraculous ways. And, and so maybe you've got a story like that that you can think of in your life. Here's the main theme of today's message. Faith sees further. Faith sees further. And we're going to see a story in Mark which will illustrate that in several different ways. But first of all, let's think about what faith actually is. Let's define our term here because faith is the key word this morning. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 1 talks about faith like this. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. So there's a part of faith which assures us of our eternity with Jesus. It's something that we do not see, something that we don't hold yet, but we have this assurance that it's coming. But later in Hebrews in verse 6, it tells us that there's also this real life uh, here and now dimension to faith as well, uh, where the writer says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There's this dimension of faith in which it is both a belief that and a belief in. A belief that and a belief in. Faith is a belief that, meaning there's uh, some things that we, we, we believe we understand, and so we choose to believe them. Facts that we believe about God. 
We believe that God is love. We believe that Jesus came uh, to earth to die for our sins. We believe that he rose again. We believe that Jesus is the son of God. We believe that he's the only way to salvation. We believe that. So we cognitively assent to these things. But it's also a belief in, and and there's a, a trust, a relationship with Jesus that faith entails. There's, there's uh, steps that we take because of this trust that we have in Jesus. It prompts us to action, a belief in a person, a relationship, and we can act in relationship with this person. Uh, F. Bruce, F. Bruce writes about faith, that faith is the organ that enables people to see the invisible order. <laughs> the organ that enables people to see the invisible order. It allows us to act in faith upon what God wants us to do. So if that's what faith is, let's see faith in action. We're in this series called Find and Follow, and we're looking in the book of Mark to see what Mark tells us about what it means to follow Jesus. And faith is a key theme in this story that we'll read in Mark chapter 2. Remember, I told you a number of weeks ago that there are two major themes in the book of Mark. The first one is discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does Jesus ask for from his followers? We're going to see uh, examples of that in this story. And the second theme is, who is Jesus? The, the identity of this guy, this main character in this book. Uh, who actually is he? What does he claim about himself? Uh, what do we learn about who he is? And that's a main theme in this story as well. So some people have actually looked at Mark 2 verses 1 to 12 and said, this is a tiny version of Mark's entire book because it contains the main themes. We see Jesus healing. We see people, some people being amazed by his healing. And then we see some people in opposition to him. This story at the beginning of chapter two also marks the beginning of a chapter and a half of conflict stories. So Jesus will do something or say something and people will react against him. Usually the religious people will say, you can't do that. Uh, Or why are you doing that? Uh, And there's this conflict and growing opposition to Jesus that begins in this story. So here we go. Mark chapter two, verses one to 12. Here's what the story says. A few days later, When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat. The the original Greek has that word immediately again, because Mark loves that word. Immediately he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Incredible story. 
And we're going to examine it through the, the eyes of three of the main players in the story. We're going to look at it through the eyes of the friends of the paralyzed man. We'll look at it through the eyes of the paralyzed man. And then we'll look at it through the eyes of the teachers of the law. And we'll see how faith sees further. So let's look at the friends first of all. And what we learn from the friends is that faith sees further than obstacles. Faith sees further than obstacles. Now put yourself in their shoes here. They've, they've got this fifth friend who's paralyzed. And we don't know if this friend had always been paralyzed or if he'd had an accident and recently become paralyzed or if he had a disease that was slowly crippling him. We, we don't really know. But they had this paralyzed friend and they had, must have heard about Jesus somehow. And they had heard that Jesus was doing these miracles and he was healing people and he was driving out demons and people were really excited about his ministry. And so they said, if we can only get this guy in front of Jesus, Jesus will be able to do for him what we can't and what he can't do for himself. So they take him towards the house that Jesus is in. Now, Jesus was living in Capernaum at this time. Some people think this might have been Jesus' house Uh, Jesus' own house. Some people think maybe it was one of the disciples' houses. We don't know for sure. But they go to the house where Jesus is teaching and the house is packed. Now, one commentator suggested that perhaps they could have squeezed in as many as 50 people inside this house, certainly not physically distanced. They were crammed in there. And then there is perhaps that many or maybe even more outside the house just trying to get an ear on what Jesus was saying because he was teaching with such authority. So they come to the house, they realize there's no way we're getting in the door. But they saw past the obstacle and they saw the staircase on the side of the home. Now, this was a usual thing for a staircase to lead up to the roof. And people would go there to relax or to be alone. Sometimes on hot summer nights, people would sleep up on the roof. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to go up on the roof. And so they get up there and they think, well, let's just dig through the roof. (laughs) Now, you and I think about that and we think that that's a, a violation of somebody's property. Uh, and highly offensive. Like if someone came to your house and took a chainsaw and cut a hole in the roof to lower somebody down, you would be out a lot of money to fix that, and you'd probably be a little bit upset. Roofs in that day were made out of wooden cross beams, and then uh, leaves and branches and dried mud all caked together that created a a waterproof uh, roof on the top of of the home. But they did have to redo these roofs about once a year. So it was a common thing to repair a roof. So it probably actually wasn't as big of a a deal to fix the roof as we might think it would be uh, in our day. But nonetheless, it's still an inconvenience to the homeowner who now has to do a patch job on the roof. So I can just imagine being in the home. Like put yourself in in that scenario, listening to Jesus, and maybe you hear some footsteps up on the roof and and maybe some voices, and, and then you hear some scratching noises coming from above and and you think, is, is, is that dust coming down from the ceiling? And, and then you, you, you hear this scratching get a little louder and you see these fingers break through and start to pull back and daylight starts to shine through and you see somebody's eye looking through the hole and saying, there's Jesus over there. Let's dig a little to the right. And, and they dig a hole big enough to, to lower a person through and the crowd, which is already jammed into the room, is now pushed up against the sides so that they can have this guy drop down from the skies. And so these friends saw past the obstacle of the full room, of the full house. And they go up on the roof, they lower the guy down. Interesting note on this story. Jesus looks at the man on the ground. And then he looks up at the friends whose faces he can still see on the roof. And Mark says that he sees their faith. 
It's a plural pronoun that Mark uses here. He's, he's not talking about the faith of the man. He's talking about the faith of the friends. Now, he might be including the faith of the man, but he's definitely talking about the faith of the friends on the roof. He saw their faith and he acted on this man's behalf. Their faith. This is the first instance where we read about faith in the book of Mark. And many uh, commentators have have pointed out that when we first read about uh, faith in the book of Mark, we read about faith that is put into action. We don't just read about a passive belief or a a cognitive assent to some facts, though those were there behind the action. We read about friends who carried their friend who knows how long, climbed up the stairs onto the roof and dug through the ceiling so that they could lower the guy down to Jesus. Faith that was in action is how we read about it in Mark. So commentator Mark Strauss says, persistent faith in the face of opposition is an important theme in Mark's gospel. Persistent faith in the face of opposition. Which leads us to a question that we should ask ourselves as we think about these friends. What are the obstacles in your life that are stopping you from acting in faith? What are the obstacles in your life that are getting in the way of you putting your faith into action? Maybe it's, well, I can't really afford what I feel like God is asking me to do. How am I going to provide for my family? Maybe it's, I think I might be embarrassed to open my mouth and talk about Jesus with a friend of mine, or I don't have the courage to do what Jesus is asking me to do. How, is, how are obstacles getting in the way of your faith? Maybe the prognosis doesn't look very good and you've given up hope. How are these obstacles getting in the way of your faith? Because faith sees further than obstacles. The second question we can ask ourselves when it comes to these friends is, who are you bringing to Jesus? <laughs> who are you bringing to Jesus? These friends had the understanding that if we could just get our friend in front of Jesus, we could fix this problem. He could find healing. And not only did he find physical healing, he found spiritual healing as well. We just need to bring him to Jesus. So who are you bringing to Jesus? And and that starts with prayer. Who are you bringing to Jesus repeatedly in prayer, asking for Jesus to intervene in their lives? Maybe for them to come to faith. Maybe that he would provide healing. Maybe that he would provide resources. Who knows what it could be? How are you bringing your friends to Jesus? And then how are you openly sharing your faith with them that the Holy Spirit might also give them faith? So faith sees further than obstacles. We see that from the four friends. Now let's shift our focus to the paralyzed man. And from the paralyzed man, we learn that faith sees further than the material. Faith sees further than the material. In fact, when Jesus first addresses this guy, what, what, what is everyone expecting Jesus to say? Well, everyone in the room and even us as readers of this story are expecting Jesus to say, you're healed. Because that's what Jesus had done with so many other people. That's why this man was brought to Jesus, is that he would find healing. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And so uh, we, we don't know anything about this paralyzed man. We don't know if he was the worst of sinners, or we don't know if he was actually a pretty good guy. 
We don't know if Jesus was looking at him and, and knew that he had a sin problem that needed to be forgiven and this man felt great relief. Or we don't know if this man was really disappointed to hear the words, your sins are forgiven. That's how I've always pictured this scenario uh, unfolding. The man hears your sins are forgiven and he says, what? That, that's, that's not why I'm here, Jesus. I'm here so that you can fix my legs. But Jesus sees what this man really needs. He didn't need a physical healing first. He needed a spiritual healing. His greatest need was the forgiveness of his sins. His greatest need was to be made right with God before any of his physical needs were met. Now, Jesus went on to heal him physically because Jesus has the power to do that. But Jesus saw that the greatest need here was spiritual and not physical. Tim Keller tweeted out last week this uh, comment, God will only give you what you'd ask for if you knew everything he knew. (laughs) God will only give you what you'd ask for if you knew everything that he knew. While Jesus knew that this guy needed spiritual cleansing before he needed a physical healing. Sometimes when we approach God, we come with our list of things that we think we need. In fact, sometimes our prayers are an attempt to control God. God, would you please do this? Would you please do that? Would you please do the thing that I want you to do in the way that I want you to do it? But God knows what we really need. And that's what he offers to us first. Now, there's a second issue with the paralyzed man that we need to address because it probably raised this question for you. The question is, is the man's sin, or the man's suffering rather, connected to his sin? Is he suffering because he sinned? Is that why Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven? Because there was a sin that had caused this suffering. And we could ask of our own experience, or the times when I suffer in life, is, is that because I have somehow sinned and offended God and I'm somehow reaping the, 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 the consequences of this sinful behavior? Well, the answer in scripture is yes and maybe. <laughs> yes, in the fact that suffering and sickness and pain and death didn't exist in God's created world. Those things were only uh, uh, entered the world after sin entered the world as a consequence of sin. And so that original sin of humanity back in the garden uh, put into motion this, this pain and suffering and sickness and death. So we only experience those things because of sin on the macro level. On a more micro level, we we ask ourselves, do I suffer because of my own specific sin? And when we look through the scriptures, there are instances where yes, that is the case and instances where no, that's not the case. So we look at a story in Joshua chapter seven. The Israelites had just started their conquest of the promised land. They just taken Jericho. It was very successful. And God had commanded them with all the things that you take from Jericho, they're all to be devoted to the Lord. You, You need to give them all back to me. And there was one man by the name of Achan who said, "Mm, these things look kind of nice. I'm going to take a couple of them for myself. And so he took a few things back to his tent and he buried them. So soon after the Israelites approach another small little town, the town of Ai, and they say, this should be no problem. We'll just send a few people. Uh, Not all of our troops need to go. We should win this no problem because God's with us. Well, they lost in decisive fashion. And so Joshua, the leader, is on his face saying, God, why did you abandon us? You told us we were going to win these battles and now we've lost. And and God says to him, get up off the ground. Israel has sinned. Interesting, he says, Israel, the community has sinned, even though it was the sin of one man. And so eventually they find out that it was Achan who had taken these things. 
And this is why they had suffered loss. This is, this is why they hadn't won. One man's sin uh, had caused negative consequences for the entire people. Or you think of, of King David. He has this affair with Bathsheba. And not only that, but once he finds out that he's gotten Bathsheba pregnant, he has her husband killed in battle so that he can take her as his own wife. And the prophet Nathan approaches him about this and says, you're in the wrong, you've, you've sinned. And the consequence of your sin is that this child that Bathsheba is carrying is going to die. And that's exactly what happens. The child dies because of David's infidelity. There's a direct connection between sin and suffering. And not just suffering for David, suffering for Bathsheba and for this child who didn't get a chance to live. But in other stories, we read that suffering is completely disconnected from sin. In Job, for instance, Job suffered a lot even though he was a righteous man. And he has three friends who keep coming to him and saying to him, Job, you must have sinned. Like, you need to repent. You need, you need to get right with God and these things will stop happening. You must have made him angry by something that you did. And at the end of the story, we, we don't get a clear-cut answer from God about why this suffering happened, but we do get a rebuke of the three friends. God says to them, you, you don't understand what's going on here. So sin and suffering were not directly connected in that story. And, and we don't get clear-cut answers as to why that suffering occurred. But we do know that these friends ha had the wrong understanding. Or in John chapter 9, there's a man that's born blind. And the religious leaders ask the question, well, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? There's an assumption there that this man must be uh, suffering because of somebody's sin. And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God must be displayed in his life. In other words, I'm going to perform a miracle that's going to bring glory to God. That's why the man was born blind. It had nothing to do with sin. So sometimes in scripture, we see that suffering is connected to sin. And sometimes we find that it's completely disconnected. You know, you've had people asking these days, is this pandemic a result of human sin? I don't know the answer to that. It's possible, but it's also possible that God wants to use this for his glory in some way, or maybe it's both. So when it comes to suffering in our own lives, we, we, we are wise, I think, to approach God when we re recognize that we're suffering and say, God, is there any sin in my life that's contributing to this suffering? And if there is, the Holy Spirit will reveal it to us so that we can repent of it. But often in our lives, we're going to ask that question and, and find that the answer is no, there's, this isn't a result of sin. There are other purposes that God wants to accomplish here. And then we turn our attention to how do you want to use this in my life and how can I suffer well so that you receive glory? I think Mark chapter 2, when we look at this paralyzed man, I think it's more the, the latter category that God wants to receive glory and that's why this man is paralyzed. Because God is about to heal him physically, but he's also about to prove who he actually is to the people. There's a point that God wants to make about his identity here. And so I, I, that's what I think about this paralyzed man, that God wants to display his glory. So a question we need to ask ourselves here when we think about faith that sees further than the material is, have you turned to Jesus as the one who gives you exactly what you need rather than what you want? And have you recognized that Jesus first wants to do a spiritual work in you before he necessarily wants to get to the physical work that he can do in you? 
So faith sees further than the material, and faith sees further than obstacles. Now we turn to the teachers of the law in the story. And here we learn that faith sees Jesus for who he really is. Now I can hear you saying, but the teachers of the law didn't see Jesus for who he really is, uh, which is true. They're actually serving as a, a foil for us. They're showing us what not to do. By their unbelief, they are showing us what belief might look like. Faith sees Jesus for who he really is. The irony here <laughs> is that while the crowd, while the, the religious leaders are thinking in their minds that Jesus is committing blasphemy, and who does this fellow think that he is? Jesus, as God, is reading their minds and knows what they're thinking, which seems like something that only God would do. And he reads their minds and he repeats it back to them, saying, I know what you're thinking right now. Now, Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man, which is a title that deserves our attention for just a minute here. Jesus refers to himself throughout the book of Mark as the Son of Man, which is a title that only Jesus uses for himself. Nobody else calls him that. And it's a title that didn't really have a precedent. There was no preconceived notion as to who the Son of Man was. And so when Jesus uses this, his actions actually define what he means by this title, Son of Man. Often we think about the title, Son of Man, and we think Jesus is saying, well, I'm the Son of God, so I'm divine, and I'm also the Son of Man, which means I'm human. So it's, it's giving us a picture of Jesus' divinity and his humanity. And there's a part of that that title that tells us that, but it's not the full picture of what Jesus is doing with this title, Son of Man. It's possible here and likely that Jesus is referencing Daniel chapter 7. In uh, verses 13 and 14, this is what Daniel writes, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this Son of Man title, if, if this is in fact a correct allusion, uh, is referring to the power and the glory and the sovereignty that Jesus carries with him. Now later in Daniel chapter 7, this Son of Man character is also uh, equated or closely identified with the oppressed people of God who are said to receive sovereignty, power, and the greatness of the kingdoms of the earth after a period of suffering. So there's also this part of suffering that comes before glory that Jesus is referring to here in Daniel chapter 7. And as Jesus lives out his life and completes his mission on earth, we see these themes that Jesus is receiving this glory and power and greatness, but he had to go through this suffering first. So this is what Jesus is referring to when he says the Son of Man. So as we see that title throughout the book, keep that in mind. Now, back to our story and the teachers of the law. Notice that Jesus doesn't ask the teachers of the law, what's easier to do? What's easier to do? Is it easier to, to, to heal the man or is it easier to forgive sins? He doesn't ask what's easier to do because in that setting, the answer would have been obvious to everyone. Well, it's easier for you to heal the man than to forgive sins. Because in their mind, only God forgave sins. Nobody else can do it. So Jesus can't do that. It's easier for him to heal the man. And they would have seen other prophets or other uh, really spiritual people who had performed healings. And so if Jesus had simply healed the man and said nothing about the forgiveness of sins, they would have celebrated Jesus as a prophet. And look, he's brought healing and what an amazing thing. That's what's easier to do. But Jesus' question is, what's easier to say? 
(laughs) Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say, get up and walk? The issue here becomes provability. It's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven because nothing visible happens at that point. But if I say to someone who can't walk, get up and walk, well, the issue becomes the provability of my words. It becomes uh, an issue of authority. Is that actually going to happen because I said it? Jesus, in their minds, was blaspheming because he hadn't carried out any of the usual routine when it came to the forgiveness of sins. There was no ceremony. There was no ritual. There was no sacrifice. There was no priest presiding over things. So for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven would be to equate himself with God. And that was blasphemy in their minds. To presume presume to forgive sins is an arrogant affront to the majesty of God, which appropriately can be labeled blasphemy, writes David Garland. So Jesus says, what's easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say get up and walk? So to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins, I will say to the man, get up and walk. And when he gets up and walks, you will see that I have this authority. People who responded in faith in that moment, including the paralyzed man, showed that faith sees Jesus for who he really is. Faith sees Jesus as the Son of God. Faith sees Jesus as one who is sent on a divine mission. And Jesus here proclaims the forgiveness of sins, but he would walk that out throughout his life as he carried out his mission, as he says it, to give his life as a ransom for many. To go to the cross so that sins could be forgiven through that sacrifice so that people could be raised to new life in Jesus, so that people could experience forgiveness and eternal life. This is what Jesus came for. So the question that confronts us as we think about these teachers of the law is, do you see Jesus for who he really is? Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Now, I imagine that when we get to heaven, our our vision is going to be expanded greatly. And we are going to realize how little we actually comprehended about who Jesus is and what he did and everything that he accomplished on the cross. I imagine our minds will be blown when we see the full picture. But we are invited into this relationship with Jesus that sees him as the one who grants us access to eternal life, that we can believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we will be saved. And so if you are exploring Christ, that's the question that confronts you. Do you see Jesus for who he really is as the one who sees your deepest need, your spiritual need to be right with God? The one who walked through obstacles on your behalf, so that you would have right relationship with God. Do you see Jesus for who he really is? He's inviting you into relationship. Now, this spiritual sight, seeing Jesus for who he really is, impacts us all no matter where we are on our faith journey, because we will act on our faith if we see Jesus for who he really is. The obstacles that we confront won't stop us from acting on faith when we see Jesus for who he really is. Faith sees further. So I close with these questions for you. 
Is your faith being acted on? Is it being displayed in action because you know who Jesus really is? Are there instances in which you're doubting the power of God in your situation? Are there instances in which you know that God is inviting you to put your faith into action, to take a risk, to take a step beyond what you're comfortable with? The next level in our relationship with God lies just beyond the boundaries of our current experience. It takes a step of faith to break through that boundary. So what's God inviting you today to today when it comes to steps of faith? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that you are our healer. That you provide for us in the ways that we need. That you provide healing physically and spiritually. And that you know what we need in each moment of our lives. I pray for the eyes of faith so that we could see you for who you truly are. May we not be like the teachers of the law who were skeptical of you at every step of the way. May we be like the the four friends and the paralyzed man and the crowd that responded with amazement when we see you for who you are. And may we be prompted to act in faith. Give us courage, Lord, to act on faith, to put that into practice this week, to follow you where you're calling and to be used by you in amazing ways. Thank you for your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.